If you have your scriptures, your Bible with you, we're going to look at um, our first passage we're going to look at. And we'll, if, you, if you can, if you're able to, if you would stand in the reading, in the honor of reading God's Word, we're going to read Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. Uh, the first three chapters of Revelation are so amazing. Oftentimes we think of the book of Revelation, we just think of a book of prophecy about end-time events. And of course it's all that. But these messages that the, that the Lord has to the, the Apostle John, to these churches, it's incredibly important and significant. But well, we're going to look at um, uh, these first few verses here, starting in, in uh, cha- verse um, uh, 9 of chapter 1. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the, seven, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You may be seated. Today we're going to look at this passage, and in conjunction with this, we're going to kind of dovetail on a couple other passages. And here's what the Lord has for us today, I believe. It's the things He wants to reveal to us about Himself. And we're going to look at here that John's writing to this church. John gets this message to a group of churches who need to be encouraged, to have courage, because they're facing a very difficult time in their life for the church, and also in the Apostle John's life as well. Then we're going to look at a church in Philippi that needed uh, to be careful because of things that were creeping in, and things that they need to be on guard against. And then in the end we'll come to a passage where we'll look at an individual who needed to be comforted and be cleansed. And as we go through this journey, we're going to see how this ties back into this message that Paul that the Lord has to um, the Apostle John to these churches. And just a little background about these churches. These were seven historical churches. And we'll do this really fast. We're not going to spend a lot of time here on the background. But these churches were um, in an area we'd call Turkey. There's seven of them. And um, I love how when John starts off here, you know how John, he's the Apostle John. And so with that, you would think carries a lot of weight, a lot of prestige. But you don't hear John say that, do you? Look how he refers to himself. <laughs> He says, a brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. In fact, in verse 1, he refers himself as one of God's servants. I love that. John was obviously knew that he was an apostle. And he obviously knew that with that comes some distinction and, you know, and some weight as far as his credentials. But he doesn't put that out there. He doesn't laud his spiritual authority. Because John knows one thing. He knows it very clearly. That he was an eyewitness to what was revealed to him. John didn't come up with this. He's just an eyewitness to what Jesus Christ was revealing to him. And John takes great care to purposely present himself as a humble servant, and rightfully so. Because he realizes that any spiritual authority that he does possess, that he received. He did not earn it, nor did he deserve it. 
Now, John was on this island called Patmos, and basically it was just a Roman penal colony in, the, in the, what was called the GNC. It's about four miles by eight miles in size. Just a rocky, barren island where they send a bunch of prisoners. And so John was there, and John was probably in his 90s at this time. So he wasn't a young man. It's towards the end of his life. And he went to this very harsh place. And he's, can you imagine? He's on this island, separated from these churches. I mean, the Apostle John. Do you imagine how discouraging it had to be for him? And just how fearful and maybe just like, Lord, what's going on? The church is still very young at this point. You know, and this is a very uh, kind of a, um, a difficult time at this point. Because the church is going under incredible uh, persecution. It's getting ready to get worse. Now, when this is written, this is about, about 60 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. It's about 20 years since Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the temple was completely removed. It's about 25 to 30 years since the apostle uh, Peter and Paul have been martyred. And John is the last one left of the apostles, of the original 12, of the 11, and then, of course, Paul will be the 12th. He's the last one. And you got to think, don't you think Paul had to, this was one of the most discouraging times in the life of the early church. It seemed like everything was just coming unraveled. It was just an amazing, and, and John's sitting on this rocky island, and he's kind of, he's, he's separated from the church that he probably dearly loved. Most people think by this time in his life he was at the church at Ephesus. He spent probably the latter part of his ministry there, most scholars believe. And so, here he's got this shepherd's heart for these churches, but he can't do anything about it because he's on his island, at least in his mind, he doesn't think that way. And then God, our loving, gracious God, comes to him with this incredible word of encouragement to, get, to help them to take courage. I love that. And I wrote, you know, um, I wrote, as I was thinking through this, I thought, you know, why is it that, you know, um, how, how would I feel if this were me and I was living in that time? It'd be easy to get discouraged. It'd be easy to get confused. Like, God, did I hear you right? What's going on? But I love what, what John does here. When John's given the message, he, turn, he gives us this incredible description of the one who's talking to him. And I wrote that down. I said, look, look what John heard and saw. He turns around and he sees the Lord. Look what verse 17 and 18 says again. <laughs> when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. By the way, when you hear people give these little stories, I saw this vision of Jesus on the throne. And when they tell you the story, they always you don't ever hear them say, I was on my face or I was... You know, I couldn't move. You, when you hear people talk that they've seen the Lord in his exalted glory and they don't say anything like, I thought I was going to die or that I was on my face, they didn't see the Lord. Let's, let's be clear. There's no time in Scripture when anybody sees the exalted Lord that they're not on their face as if they're dead. And every single time, either the Lord or the angel, whoever it is, has to give them the strength and the ability to even stand in his presence and to even receive the word from him in that form. Does that make sense? And so John, just he sees him, he's like, I <laughs> thought I was going to die. And so, man, what a beautiful picture. This wasn't the same Jesus he put his head on his chest at the, at the Lord's Supper. This was the Son of the Most High God who came in his full, exalted glory. Because John needed to see the Savior as he is. Not as the guy who hung on the cross. That's important, but here he is, the God who holds everything in his hands we're going to see in just a moment. And can you imagine the, the incredible courage it would have given John? He's like going, I bet in that moment, he's like going, I get it. Questions answered. My fear is gone because I saw the king and he's going to take care of all this. I bet in that moment it was over for him as far as his doubts and his fears. By the way, in every single instance where that takes place, whether it was Daniel, same thing. He saw like, Isaiah, if you ever read Isaiah 6, you need to check out Isaiah 6 because Isaiah was his prophet in a very difficult time in the life of Israel. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he says his first words were, woe is me. 
In that moment, he had clarity like he never had before. That's the thing about being in the presence of Jesus. When you're in his presence, there's perfect clarity. Because that's what he brings. Because he's not the author of confusion. He clears everything up. That's what he's doing here for John and for us. And so, as I look at this, he turns around he sees, he sees Jesus who gives us this incredible words of assurance of his total and complete divine authority and control of all the situations. Not only the situations that are happening now, but the ones that have happened and also the ones that are getting ready to happen. Because John and these churches are, I mean, they've got to be thinking, man, Lord, it's getting worse and worse. All the apostles are gone. And John's now off on this island prison. What are we going to do? How are we going to go forward? And I love how when John sees this picture of the Lord, he's, and, John, and when the Lord comes, he comes in a very specific, he paints this incredible picture, and there's an image he does in his vision on purpose. He talks about being among the seven golden lampstands, and he holding seven stars in his hand. That's, for, that's on purpose, that's deliberate. We'll see that in just a second. And so, well, if you think about it, if you, um, if you have a, um, I don't have a lampstand, I'm not, I didn't want to bring one, but let's just use our imagination and say, this is, say these are lampstands. I would have Pastor Dave come up because he's got a bright shirt on. That would be like a lamp, but we're not going to do that. But uh, I'm just kidding. But say this is the lampstand. This is a beautiful picture, by the way. We don't see a picture of Jesus over here. Remember what the lampstands represent? They represent his churches. He's standing in the midst. In a moment. Can you imagine? John's, John's getting to see it for the first time in his life on a level he never saw before of God's supernatural provision for his people. And these seven churches were going through all sorts of stuff. We don't have time for that this morning. I wish we did. It's amazing. You need to check out the first three chapters and see the warnings, the commendations, uh, the criticisms that God has for them churches, and also the word he has for them what to continue in, to going forward. It's a beautiful picture. And so he's standing among the lampstands. And these lampstands are supposed to be light, to give light to the dark world of the gospel. Well, the reason he's in the middle of them, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is because he's the light of the world. He's the source of their light. You know, this flashlight works really good when there's batteries in it, you know. But, you know, if I take this top off and I pull these batteries out, it doesn't work. But, you know, does it still look like a flashlight? Yeah. Looks like one, feels like one. There's just one problem. It doesn't work like one. A flashlight without its batteries or its power source will not do what it was created to do. God's people, not in God's presence, can't live as God calls us to live. If we separate ourselves, and for whatever reason, we'll see that just briefly, we'll go through it real briefly here. Church of Ephesus does this. They left their first love. If we do that, we're removing ourselves. It's like taking the batteries out of a flashlight, and then we expect to go in as business as usual. We may look like we're okay. We may be able to fool a lot of people. But I will never, ever be able to live a life, receive the blessings, or be a blessing that God intended me in my life to be if I'm not with Him and He's not with me as far as walking in obedience. So I love this picture. John's seen this incredible picture of the Lord telling him, you know, I've got it under control. And the pictures, of course, are the seven pastors and leaders of these churches he holds in his hand. What a lovely picture. God is in control of everything. And then he had a great picture too of you know, talking about taking comfort and being encouraged, giving, being encouraged by that. It will give me, it gives me courage when I read that passage. Anything that happens to you or to me, if I'm in His hand, and we are, scriptures tell us that. And we'll see one in a second. If I'm in His hands, anything that comes to me has to first go through Him, good or bad. He has to. He's the ultimate authority on whether He allows it or doesn't allow it. 
And the reason that's a big deal, there's a lot of reasons why it's a big deal, but there's one thing. I know I can trust my Savior. He may let things happen to me that I won't agree with and I assume not have to, have to happen, but you know what? At the end of the day, He's trustworthy. And He's only going to let those things into my life that to use to, to train me and to teach me or to test me to prove that my faith is genuine and that my love for Him is strong. Not based on my effort, but my strength comes from Him. You know, as I was looking at this, I came a couple of verses, this section of Scripture came to mind. The first one was in Psalms 37. This is King David, where David's writing this. And I tell you, David, this is just one of me examples you can pull from that he writes. Look what he says as far as the Lord being his, his refuge in a place where he goes. Uh, we'll look at verses 23 and 24 of chapter 37, and then we'll jump down to verse 39 and 40, the last two verses of that chapter. He starts in verse 30, uh, 23 of chapter 37. If the Lord delights in a man's ways, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Look what um, Isaiah says. This is Isaiah 49. <laughs> I love this. Shout for joy, O heavens. This is verse 13 and 16 through 16 of Isaiah 49. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. This is kind of like a conversation here between God and Israel. And here's what Israel says. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And look at the Lord's reply. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Time and time again, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, you see time and time again these pictures of God showing and painting these incredible word pictures and these truths about how he holds his people within his hands. Can you imagine the God of this universe? By the way, in that in, uh, Semitic or uh, in that Near Eastern culture and mindset, the right hand was always a symbol of strength and power. The God of this universe says, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Now, I don't know of anyone or anything that can do anything to challenge that. I don't know of anything in the universe that can challenge God. Do you? The God of the universe says, I've written your name on the palm of my hand. Satan, by the way, Satan won't even try that. He's not that stupid. Isn't that a great word of encouragement? So sometimes when we see things, whether they're good or bad that are happened to us, we're not careful. We're going to see them through the wrong lenses. Instead of seeing them through a biblical viewpoint, we'll see them based on our emotions or our preferences or our feelings. Instead of taking them to the scriptures and letting scriptures filter through there for us and explain what's really going on. So we see this incredible picture of protection and provision from the Lord that he gives John for these seven churches. And he has to do this often with his people. He does it with me all the time. I imagine everyone in this room is the same case. You know why the Lord has to continue to remind us to be encouraged and to have courage and to give us hope and strength? Because he knows the challenges that we're going to face. Isn't that a good God? He knows that this world we live in is a wicked world. And our enemy, the enemy of our souls, is a wicked being. There's no good in him. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Period. He doesn't care how old you are. He doesn't care how young you are. He doesn't care about any of that. He's a wicked, wicked being. But God, who's so good, who upholds everything in the universe, by the way, by the power of His Word, gives us His Word to sustain us through the difficult trials that we're going to face. Think about the, the, the most powerful weapon He can give to counter this enemy 
is the thing that holds the whole universe together in the first place. Isn't that cool? What a wise and what a great God. The power of His Word. Because He knows we need it. The struggles we face. I bet there's people in this room right now who are probably going through difficult times. Whatever it was, job situation or school or relationships, you name it. There's probably days you wake up and when it's Sunday afternoon, you start going, oh, tomorrow's Monday. I dread Monday. And you just start, just like it just sucks the life out of you. Whether it's your job or whether it's a relationship, you know, you're facing, whether it's driving to work in the morning on Monday morning, it just seems like it's just like the worst time in your life. Or you're getting ready to have to deal with a, uh, or maybe a relationship that's not so good in your family or a neighbor or, whatever, or school. And those times when it feels like just whatever it is that you're struggling with, it seems to be sapping you of all your strength and energy. Those are the times we definitely need to make sure that we're in the Word and let the Lord encourage us and go back to His Word and don't let that circumstance define what God is saying to us in that moment. My circumstances or my situation should not determine what God has said. You know, I was in a situation like that, and I've told the students this before, but I had this job that I hated with a passion. You cannot hate or loathe a job more than I hated this job. You just couldn't do it. And I remember after about two years of just being mad and just admit it ruined my entire life. It about killed my marriage, let's just be honest. It was, it was awful. It consumed me just because of just the, I had such a lousy attitude. Then when I got home, my relationship with my wife was pitiful because I was spent by the time I got home. I'm not proud of that. I remember one day I was driving, I was just, man, I was complaining to the Lord. And I about had a wreck on I-75. I can remember where I was at. I was living in Chattanooga, working down in Dalton. I can remember where I was at where this happened. <laughs> and I was driving, and I was just, again, I was complaining to the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't understand. This is, what are you doing? Can you out of this? You know what the Lord spoke to me? He said, son, you don't need a change of job or a change of circumstances. You need a change of heart. Praise the name, he didn't let me have a wreck because it hit me for the first time in a way it hadn't up to that point. And I was like, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> and what you know what started happening immediately, I mean, immediately after that? God started opening my eyes. He gave me ears to hear. And eyes to see where he was at work where I was at. And I was missing all that all along. And my job did it get any easier or better? No. Did I enjoy it more? No. But you know what? That didn't define my attitude anymore. Because the joy of the Lord became my strength. And I was letting the enemy, I was letting my circumstances do that instead of the Lord. Because the enemy doesn't provide strength. He provides discouragement, hopelessness, fear, anxieties. None of that's from the Lord. And I was so thankful the Lord did that. And he does that for his people. He's doing it here in these churches here. I just came across this quote. I love this quote. It's from a guy named Warren Wearsman. He says this, When you have assurance for the future, you have stability in the present. Isn't that good? When you have hope in the future, we have stability in the present. That's what's happened. John was writing this message to these churches. Lord, when the Lord gave this message to John to write, these churches were just unsure about the future. I mean, their lives were at stake here. Many of them were killed, especially Smyrna. If you were to read about Polycarp and what happened to him, unbelievable. We have none of us have ever experienced anything like these guys went through. They, they killed an 86-year-old man because he would not deny Christ. That's all. They killed him in a very gruesome way. Many countless thousands suffered the same fate. Their future was in limbo as far as they were concerned. But then, this word of hope and encouragement to see that the God of the universe is standing among them. He's got them in there. He's got the leaders. He's got all of them in his hands, for that matter. And he's amongst them in their presence. What a cur- what, I mean, what courage it must have given the church and John 
I love the, how the Lord does that. Now these churches, by the way, just kind of in brief, we'll just do this real quick and we're going to move on. But there's seven churches. These are historical churches. They're all in Asia Minor, or what we would call Turkey, today at one time. They're all historical churches that were on the same, at the scene around the same time. Now most scholars believe these are representative of church ages, starting with um, Ephesus going all the way down to Laodicea, which would be the church at the end of the age. And so they think, they think these are, most scholars believe there's seven historical churches, but they're also, or church ages, but they're also historical churches. And what I believe, and I think most scholars agree with this that I've looked into, and I, I, from the scriptures it's pretty evident because it was true here in John's day, but I think there's versions of these churches to varying degrees at all, all throughout every, in every generation. So, so, and for believers too, some believers may be more, more of an Ephesus type believer or a church, and some may be anywhere along that spectrum. And so, um, and that's, why it's, that's why God in his wisdom, he writes that. This message is not only for the church in John's day, it's for the church of all time, for all of it, for all the ages. This, this message, and these, the message has for these three churches, or these, in these three chapters, for these seven churches, is applicable for all times. So if you have those slides, Mr. Still is up. We'll just kind of hit these real fast and we'll move on. Uh, the church in Ephesus, they were, they were in trouble because they left their first love. Pergamon, they were uh, in trouble Lord, because they compromised with false teaching. Thyatira, they were in trouble Lord, because of tolerance for sin. They allowed sin and false teaching to come in their midst, and, and they were tolerating it. Sardis, they had a reputation of being alive, but God said they were dead. And then you get to the end when Laodicea, they were lukewarm. Also, you've heard, heard that term before, lukewarm church. Jesus was actually on the outside of this church. You know, we hear a lot of people in this I think you can use it without doing damage to the scriptures, but a lot of people use Revelation 3, verse 20. It says, you know, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's Jesus talking to this church. Look at that picture. He's like, Guys, can I come in? Man, what, a, what an unbelievable uh, tragedy that was. He had to actually come to a group of professing believers and ask to be allowed in. So, there's two churches. These are five of the seven, obviously. There's two churches that didn't get a negative comment. Uh, they, weren't, uh, they didn't get criticism from the Lord. They were commended by the Lord. There was Smyrna. And uh, there's no slides for this, Spencer. I didn't give you these. But Smyrna was uh, commended that said that this is what he said about them. Though they had afflictions and poverty, the Lord said they were rich. But here's his command to them. Do not be afraid. Be faithful during persecution. And in Philadelphia, he says this. Uh, Though they had only a little strength, they kept his word and did not deny his name. And they endured patiently. And his command was, going forward, was hold on to what they had. Now, these two churches from the outside would have been like, I mean, they would have, from the, just from a human perspective, would not have looked very successful. But in God's eyes, the way the judge of the universe judges things, he saw things accurately as they really are. And so, um, let's go, I want to, if you have your Bibles, flip back to uh, Philippians 3. We're going to look at this message Paul has, just a couple of verses here. We'll look at the first part of this chapter. But I think as we look at this, this will help us kind of give us some insight and hopefully give us some help here um, that, and uh, to keep us maybe to um, not making the same mistake that these guys made and kind of shed some light on how we can avoid falling away that some of these churches, these five churches did of the seven and not fall into the same trap that they did. Look what Paul says here in chapter 3. Now, Paul, this is, the, this is the message, by the way, where Paul has to come to these believers and give them uh, a warning. and has to give them a uh, command to be careful because they were, they were being uncareful in their doctrine and their practice. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil. 
those mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to a group called the circumcised group. There were some Judaizers who would come in saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. They were saying a bunch of other stuff that was not, not true or not biblical. And so this is Paul referring to that. Look at verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, for persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is found, that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do, not want, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. The last verse of this section. Only let, only let us live up to what we've already attained. You know... Uh, these last two verses here, or excuse me, in the middle there, from 12 through 14, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He repeats it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul, Paul's confidence was in so entrenched in Jesus Christ. He was, he was so confident in the Savior's provision, the Savior's plan, the Savior's power. And it was just such a great encouragement for Paul. And Paul's writing that to these believers to encourage them too, to remember the source of their, of their not only their salvation, but of the power and provision that Jesus Christ provides. And it goes back to that quote, you know, when we have assurance for the future, it gives us stability in the present. And Paul, of all the people who ever lived, who understood what trouble was like better than anyone who's probably ever walked this earth other than the Savior. But Paul was able to endure, not only just to endure, but to thrive and to be used like very few, like no other man was ever used by God. Because Paul always kept his eye on Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 16, and this is the key to this section here. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. In other words, let's put into practice the truth that we already know and that we've already learned. Or what we've already understood or comprehended. You know, we're responsible for the truth that we currently possess. I'm not responsible for stuff I don't know about, you know. I'm responsible for what God has revealed to me at this point. You know, Adrian Rogers says it this way, and I love, this is that next slide there, uh, Spencer, if you had that, this first quote, Light obeyed leads to greater light. Light disobeyed leads to greater darkness. That's a profound truth from the Scriptures. If I walk in the light that I've been given, then I know God's going to reveal to me more light. But if God speaks to me, whether individually or as a group, 
but I decided to go a different way. I'm kidding myself. I think God's going to continue to speak to me or give me guidance. By the way, when you look at these seven churches, you see that pattern kind of playing out there in some of these churches. When they left their first love in Ephesus, that was such a big deal to God. you know what he told them? You better repent immediately or I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. He did. Because he knows. If he's among his people, only then do we have the power and the provision and the protection that we need in order to be and live the lives he's called us to live. If we separate ourselves or we turn our hearts away from anyone other than him, we put ourselves in a position that we can't be used by. We got this false theology out there that, you know, just because I'm a Christian that God has to use me or God has to bless me. What? Really? Let's let the scriptures correct us on that. God owes you and me nothing. But his promises are amazing. If we're walking obediently, the provision he, got, he gives is infinite. His mercy is unfathomable. That's why he constantly is reminding and encouraging us to stay in his presence and to be on guard, to be careful. You know, it's like when I was, um, I was 17 when I was called in the ministry, and I didn't know what that meant really specifically. And I didn't even get saved. I, was, I got saved when I was probably about eight, nine years old. I think I was officially eight and a half, but anyway, I say eight. And, um, but the Lord didn't hold me responsible for my calling at eight years old. And part of my calling, this is just for me, this is not for everybody who's called to, to ministry or anything, but for me, my part of my calling was he wanted me to go to seminary. Well, I wasn't responsible for that when I was eight years old. When I was ten years old, God didn't come to me and say, Dave, why haven't you been to seminary yet? That would make no sense. Because he had not revealed that to me yet. Now, when I was 30, and the Lord said, it's time, I was responsible for that then. Now, with that being said, at 25, I decided to make that move. I'd have been in trouble. Because that's not what God said. Or if I waited until I was 32 or 33. God made it very clear the timing of that. And for me to err, in that moment, I, I need to walk in the light and the revelation that God had given me and the knowledge that I possessed. But at 10, I wasn't responsible for that. Same thing with believers. And I love that. So God meets us where we're at. He meets us where it's our faith may seem so fragile and weak. We're going to look at this last passage in a second here. Or you may have faith that may be stronger. But God meets us where we're at. And he takes that. He takes that faith. as little, Even if we think we have great faith, as little as it is, he takes that. And he does something with it only he can do. I'll tell you, let's, um, um, before we look at that, let me, let's read these last two verses here. I want to read in uh, Philippians um, 13 and 14. He says this, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I came across this quote when I was looking at this passage months ago. I had, I had this quote on my desk for several months because it's just it's so true. And I don't know if you had that speech or not. It's this. It's from a guy named Henry Blackman. He says this. The people of this world focus on what they're overcoming. Christians focus on what they're becoming. I thought, that is so simple but so profound. You know, often in Christian life we make the mistake of, you know, you see this in a bunch of secular nonsense when it comes to counseling as far as you know, AA, which is a lie. I'll talk to you later if you have a question about that, but don't ever send anybody there. But they'll tell you that you're always, say it's alcoholic, you're always a recovering alcoholic. You're one drink away from being alcoholic again. That's a lie from hell. The God I know and the God I serve is able to completely heal and forgive 
completely. It's one step, not twelve. It's to the cross. And the work is done at the cross. Well, often in the Christian life, what we do is, you know, Dave, I've got to overcome this sin. Uh, and so we're so focused on overcoming these obstacles or getting past this situation or this circumstance or this challenge or this trial or this difficulty. We miss the most important key that we should be doing. We should be focused on what we're becoming in the image of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Because if that's my focus, kind of what Matthew says, you know, first seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other cares will be added unto him. In other words, you focus on Christ first. You focus on him. Everything else will fall into place. I cannot be a better uh, husband or a better dad if I'm not walking with the Lord first and foremost. If that relationship is where it needs to be, every other relationship will benefit from that. I don't become a better dad and a better husband to become a better Christian. I need to get right with Jesus first and foremost above everything else. And then the byproduct of that will be I'll be a better dad, I'll be a better husband, or a better employee, or a better this or that. We need to be focused on what we're becoming. And I think that's critical for any believer or church. As we, if we want to walk in the abundant life and the victory that God offers, we keep our eyes on Him. Not our surroundings, not our circumstances, not other detractors or anything that's discouraging. And if we do that, we'll be better, be better able to serve Him in His plan with His power as we become more like Christ. More dependent on Him, more trusting in Him, more satisfied in Him, more in love with Him. And by the way, that's what Smyrna and Philadelphia did. That's why they were commended by the Lord. Though they were poor, God said, you're rich. Isn't that awesome? That's the only opinion that matters in this whole world, is what Jesus Christ says. Everyone, I don't care what your opinions in this room are. They don't matter compared to Jesus Christ. My opinion counts for nothing. Only one matters. The only one counts. Because if, last time I checked, none of us have to stand before anyone else in this room when the, when the day was all said and done, Hebrews says we're going to one day stand before the eyes of Him. We're going to stand before the Lord. We're going to have to give account to Him. And all the books, everything's going to be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him do we must give an account. That's a sobering thought. That's a great warning, to, you know, hopefully, as we go through our lives, to keep us and encourage us to be careful as we walk, as we live, and we try to follow the Lord. Let's look at this last example here. If you go to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, I want, to look, I want to look at an example real quick here, and we'll wrap up. An example of the Lord's earthly ministry and an encounter he had with some people here and how this shows God's amazing love and his ability to comfort his people and to offer cleansing. Um, that's the three things we've been kind of looking at. We've looked at, of course, how God gives courage to his people, how God warns his people to be careful. And now we're going to look at, again, how he's... Because this is for us, too, not just the individuals in this story, because we're able to benefit from the scriptures here, how God offers comfort and he offers healing and cleansing to those who will, who will come to him. I'm going to pick up in verse um, 21 of Matthew 5. It's a very familiar passage. There's a couple of things going on in this chapter. We're going to focus on the, uh, this lady uh, primarily. We'll pick up verse 21. We'll go to verse 34. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. <clears throat> when, she heard that Jesus, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. 
because she thought, listen to what she thought here, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? <laughs> you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. Possibly one of the most beautiful passages in all the Gospels. One of them. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, I probably have some professors in seminary who would have looked at this woman's approach to Jesus and have shot down her theology left and right. Oh, you shouldn't approach the world like that. You should say there's no fault. You know, it's like, be quiet. You know, some of these guys never get out. They, don't, they need to go to the library and lock themselves up and never leave. Don't go back to the classroom. They're just, they have no place being around people. Some of them were some of the godliest people I've ever met, and I'm still learning from their, their teachings today. But some of these guys would have shot down this theology because it wasn't maybe what we would call maybe correct theology, so to speak, but it was. You look at what she says, you're thinking, all she said was, if I just touch him, I'll be healed. You know the Lord saw? I love this. He took her faith. It's basically a mustard seed, tiny as it was. He took that and he received it. Because she came to the only one that she knew could do something about her life. Not just her illness, but apparently her sins too. You know why? Because when he turns to her, he doesn't say woman. He says daughter. In that moment she received salvation. Because she came to him in faith. Repentance and faith. Isn't that beautiful? He turns to her and he says, Daughter. Can you imagine, do you remember the day, if you're a believer, the first day you heard the father, the father said, or the son said to you? When the Lord looked at you and said, Son or daughter. I do. And every time I think about that, I'm just overwhelmed. Like, why me, Lord? Thank you, but man. I think sometimes we forget about that day far too often. But in this moment, there's this crowd around Jesus. His disciples weren't really getting what was going on. These people who are following Jesus were mostly what we see from the Gospels accounts. Oftentimes, were there for the wrong reasons. They just want to see a great miracle or have him maybe feed him for free or something. They just they really didn't get Jesus' earthly ministry. The majority of the people did not, at least during his earthly life. And this crowd was just crowding around against him. But this one woman singled out. His disciples were like, you know, we're probably like disciples here in this case. They know that Jesus was in a hurry to get to this daughter who's near death. This is a important official. He's a synagogue ruler. He might have been a great guy. He probably was a very wealthy guy. But you know what? They were urgent to get there in their minds. And this crowd was all around him. So he probably just want to get to point A to point B so we can get out of this crowd and Jesus can heal this girl before it's too late. But Jesus stops. Who touched me? Uh, don't you know the disciples are probably like going, well, we got to go. Come on. No. This is a lesson not just for this woman, but for his disciples and the crowd. Because Jesus had knew something far more important was going to happen here than healing this woman of her illness. He wanted to show her and show his disciples and this crowd that were following. He's the one that could take away her sin. Isn't that beautiful? He stops. He says, daughter. Because he knows our hearts. Disciples had no idea what was going on probably in the conversation between her heart and the Lord. But they saw all the results. That Jesus, in this crowd of countless people pressing against him, 
I just, I just made a glance or a touch of his hem of his garment. And Jesus knew. You know what that tells me? You want know to take comfort in that? My faith and your faith, you may be in a state in your walk right now where your faith just seems so fragile and so just tiny and just barely there. It's like you're hanging on by a thread maybe. And you probably, you come to Jesus and you're like, well, is Jesus really going to hear my prayer? Don't you love this? He meets us where we're at. He holds us responsible for the truth that we know. And he expects us to walk in the truth of that and the obedience to that. But wherever we're at in our journey, wherever your faith is, you bring in what you have. And you see what he does with that. He took that little bit of faith that Jesus could do something about her life. And he did the most amazing thing ever. He gave her not only healing, which was a secondary thing, but he gave her life eternal and life abundantly. Isn't that awesome? And then she got to see face. Because Jesus could have just let her. He, she could have been healed and he could have kept walking. But he didn't want to do that. He stops in the middle of this crowd on a very important mission. Turns around because he wanted to have a face-to-face encounter with this woman. He wanted her to see her Savior. Isn't that awesome? He's not a distant God. He's personal. And he's loving. And he's good towards all that he has made. And he wanted this young woman, or this lady... To understand that she's coming to him, the one that she's coming to is something that her faith was being strengthened. Not only was she being healed, there's a lot of other things going on here in this woman's life. I thought, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful picture by our great God. By the way, in verse 34, where it says, um, um, He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. That word healed in the Greek literally means saved. That's the little Greek translation of the word. It saved you. I thought, man. And as I reflect on this verse, it, it brought me back to the verse we started back, one of the verses we started back in Revelation 1, verse 18, where Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Your life, my life, the circumstances that come our way, he's the one who's in charge and has authority over all that. He's in complete control. It kind of brings us back to where we started from, back in Revelation 1, which is our first love, Jesus Christ. The moment that you or I, individually or corporately, we take a step away from the Father, from His will, His revealed will, or move away from His, our, our affections of a heart turned towards something or anything else other than Him, we put ourselves in a position to be like this flashlight. It may seem simple at first. It may seem not like that big a deal. But man, I would shudder to think one day I'd wake up and be like the church of Sardis. Who thought I was alive? The God said, you're dead. There's no power. There's no life in you. Sardis had a whole bunch of stuff going on, by the way, activity-wise. In fact, a lot of people call it the program church. They're like this battery. At some point, for whatever reason, they allow themselves to move away from God's heart. You know, Henry Blackaby's right when he said that. We need to be, what we need to do is keep our focus on what we're becoming. And what we're becoming should be more like Christ. And that's why we had this message, I believe. One of the many reasons we had this message 
not not only the ones in Philippians and the and the Gospels, but in these in this first three chapters of Revelation, there's a lot of reasons. But there's one: that God is so so wise and so good. He wants His people to get one thing. There's a lot of things, but there's one thing underlying themes about this whole message, that this whole purpose of writing these three chapters. Because a lot of times, most of us probably stay away from Revelation because it just seems kind of complicated and kind of confusing, or we we go there for all the wrong reasons kind of be entertained about what God's going to do in the future, you know? And we miss what it has to do for us in the present. And there's nothing wrong with prophecy. I, I love prophecy, but there's a place for that. We need to have a balance. But God is far more concerned about our relationship with Him than He is anything else. That's number one with God. Above, there's, no, there's not a close second. That's why when He writes His message these three, these, in these three chapters, these seven churches... It's applicable for every church in every generation that's ever been from now all the way back to the first century. Only God could do that, by the way. Because God knows His people need to be encouraged and to be reminded constantly who is their source, who's the Savior, and who's their strength. Because He knows in each age that we face, all the challenges we're going to face, the attacks, the lies, some subtle, some not so subtle. And if we'll just stay close to him, just like that church, you know, I love how he says to the church here in uh, to Philadelphia and to Smyrna, these churches were small and weak and fragile. All of them were, by the way, whether they admitted it or not, or whether they realized it or not. That's just the truth. But Jesus isn't. He said, though they had afflictions and poverty, he said they were rich. This is Smyrna. He said, don't be afraid. Be faithful during persecution. And they were really going to, and this is, Prior to them getting it really full-blown, by the way. And by the way, that's a good thing to be reminded of, too. Sometimes we judge circumstances as God's favor or God's blessing. I see people who have been blessed maybe in certain areas, but you get around them and you kind of get walk up close to them in their life, you're like, well, wow. Man, they're, they're missing the most important blessings, you know? And I've seen some people who seem to have, I met this one guy one time, I was in Texas, and this guy was poor. Him and his three kids, no, he had four kids, lived in this little two-bedroom apartment in Fort Worth. Tiny, you know what he did for a job? He drove a bus. You know why he drove a bus? Because it freed up his time to do the ministry that God had called him to do. And God was supernaturally providing for this guy and his family, very meagerly. But this guy was going into prisons, some youth prisons and some adult prisons, every day and sharing the gospel. Now, if you saw this guy, he, he dressed kind of like a nerd. First time I met him, I was like, wow, okay. I wouldn't have picked that outfit, but that's okay, you know? But the Lord quickly, man, just lit me up over that horrible attitude. And he gave me the privilege of being around this guy for a year and a half. The truths I learned from him, are, I'm still learning from him. He's one of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. And I will see time and time again lives being changed by his obedience to what God called him to do. It's amazing. This guy got it. He was staying close to the Savior. And as far as the world was concerned, he was missing a bunch of opportunities. And he was turning down a lot of things as far as ways to maybe make more money or all this. But I remember asking one time, just we we're talking about that, and his name was Nathan. I said, Nathan, I said, well, I said, well you know, how do you, how do, how do your family get by? And he said, we just trust the Lord. And they have some people who are prayer partners and people who financially support them, his ministry, but... It's just amazing. He just—he never tells anybody about a need. 
He just he's, I mean, there's a lot of George Mueller in a lot of ways. He doesn't tell anybody what's going on as far as that goes. He just trusts the Lord. I'm telling you, I love, I can't wait to one day to hear how many people are in the, are going to be part of our family, eternal family, because of his obedience. What the, you talk about a reward that will never tarnish your faith. Sometimes we get so earthly minded. You know, there's a saying, that person is so heavily minded, they're no earthly good. That is all. That is, that's impossible. Whoever came up with that was wrong. I don't know whoever said that, but they're dead wrong. I think somebody used to say that about Moody all the time when I first heard the reference. He's so uh, heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. <laughs> really? Really? How's that possible? To be so heavenly minded, to be no earthly good. You can't be any earthly good unless we're heavenly minded. The opposite is true. Sometimes we don't see that or we miss that based on maybe our just being disoriented to God and His ways because we're not spending time with Him. And so as we close, I want us to close in prayer here. One of the things I want us to kind of take a few moments here, quietly, and I'll close this here in a second prayer, is ask the Lord some things. It's good to do a checkup, you know, spiritual checkup on a regular basis. And you've probably heard me ask this question before, but this is a question I ask myself all the time. I have to. But ask the Lord in these next few moments when we take a few moments here to pray. Lord, how is my heart? How do you see my heart in relation to you? Not how Dave thinks it is or what other people say about Dave, but how do you see it? What's your evaluation of my heart with you right now? And also, ask the Lord this. You know, in every, every message to those seven churches, he ended it the exact same way. On purpose, by the way, deliberately. You know what he said? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ask the Lord, Lord, do I have ears to hear what you're saying? And, I, and with that, ask Him this. Is my heart ready to respond in obedience to whatever it is you've been showing me? Let's pray.